Welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Amaka. How are y'all doing? I know I always ask how you guys are doing, and obviously you can't respond back to me, but every time I say it, I mean it. How are you guys doing? Just take a second, think about it, and um, take a minute for yourself. Check in with yourself. How are you doing? If you're doing good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Or I'm glad that that is the case. If you're not doing so great, then I'm sending some love your way. I'm sending some support your way. I'm sending some strength your way. And I hope that whatever you're going through right now passes and that you can find yourself on the other side soon. How am I doing? I am doing well. I'm getting busier with work. My caseload is steadily increasing. I get about, nowadays, I get about maybe five or six intakes a week. And an intake is pretty much the first appointment that you have with a client as a psych NP. It's usually an hour. The The time varies from practice to practice. Some places do 45 minutes, some places do 30 minutes, which I personally don't think you can do a thorough intake assessment in 30 minutes. Sometimes you can't even do it in an hour because, you know, there's a lot of history. And sometimes the client has an affinity for just kind of talking. Sometimes you can tell as an NP that the patient just wants to kind of vent and really just need someone to talk to, which is going to be part of what I talk about later in the episode. But yeah, typically it is an hour for me and I have about five to six of them a week. And that is that number is slowly going up. I was, I remember being a little nervous the first month when I started at the practice because the intakes were coming in a little slow and I asked the practice manager, hey, you know, are there going to be some new intakes coming in soon? And she was like, yeah, we just got a bunch. This was maybe like a month ago or a little less than she's like, yeah, we got a bunch of intakes over the weekend. So we'll be slowly filling up your calendar. And I was like, okay. And honestly, ask and you shall receive because since since I asked about that, it has been coming in to the point where I asked the practice manager to please cap intakes at two a day. <laughs> please cap them at two a day because I had one day where I had three intakes scheduled in addition to some follow-up appointments and... I was by the end of the day, I was just so fatigued and just drained. I don't know if maybe there was something going on that maybe contributed to like the tiredness that I was feeling that day. But I remember I had one line, one last intake at the end of the day, and I got in contact with the client and asked them if we could reschedule because I knew that I wouldn't be able to give my best and whole self to that patient if we, you know, continued to have it that afternoon. So I realized for myself that 
I'm maxed out on two intakes a day in addition to all my follow-up appointments. And I end the day not feeling too drained and, you know, feel like I can do other things too if I have evening plans. So I say all that to say really that I'm getting busy when it comes to work, but busy in a good way. I would say that I probably averaged maybe one or two patients a day when I first started. Now I'm averaging four to five a day. And I believe by the holidays or maybe the end of January, I will probably have a full caseload. Today I didn't like a, I created a patient list because I actually didn't know how many patients I've seen and patients I'm managing at this point since I started first week of August. And I realized after doing that list that I am taking care of almost 50 patients at this point, which I saw that number. It's like 46, 47. I saw that number and I was like, whoa, I did not know I am managing this, these many cases already, you know, and it made me feel good. I had a few different types of feelings when I saw that. The first feeling I saw was, whoa, like this is good. I am building a solid caseload. You know, I'm managing the treatment of these patients, whether it's therapy or medications or both, you know, and I'm really doing it. Sometimes I still have days where I'm like, wow, I'm really like a psych NP, like, you know, I am seeing these patients confidently. I am doing these patient interviews. I am calling these therapists. I'm talking to these primary care providers. I am, you know, just doing everything. I am writing these prescriptions. I am just doing it all when it comes to this profession. And it it has set in a little bit more for me. Like when I say, when someone asks me, oh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a psych MP. Like, it doesn't sound like I'm lying. It, I don't feel like I'm lying anymore. <laughs> the way I did in, you know, January of this year when I had just first started, like I was fresh, first job, you know, baby, baby NP, you know, and I'm still very much still, I still consider myself a new grad, and I think that'll change for me once I hit my one year anniversary, which is January 24th will be one year that I've been practicing actively. So that's in about like four ish months. So I still consider myself a new grad, but still very much feeling more comfortable with the title of psychiatric nurse practitioner. And it feels good. Um, so another feeling that I had with kind of seeing all the patients on that list was like feeling like, am I doing enough for them? Because I'm seeing so many already and I will surely see more. As many as I'm seeing already, my caseload will definitely at least double, maybe triple. And sometimes I already feel like I have a lot to do with the patients I currently have. And I guess ultimately, I just don't want to ever feel like I'm going through the motions when seeing my patients. I always want to be present. I always want to give my best, whether the visit is 15 minutes or it's an hour. Like I just want 
to be 100% with every patient that I see. And it will get to a point where I'm seeing 10 to 14 patients a day. Like I said, I'm averaging like four and five, four to five right now. So by this time next year, I'm definitely going to be full and seeing, you know, double digits in a day. And I'm just trying to figure out how I can do that while still maintaining the level of connection I have with the patients at the point where I'm at now. And I'm wondering, you know, the people that I'm seeing at this point, and am I doing all that I can for them? You know, I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. And I say that because not like I am not doing my job or I'm neglecting their needs as my patients, but I just feel like as a provider, you can always learn, you can always improve, you can always broaden your knowledge base. You never know what you're going to encounter. You know, don't assume that you know everything. And that's kind of what I mean when I say no, I don't think I'm doing everything I can. I'm doing what is required as an NP. But in terms of going above and beyond, maybe taking a little of an extra step for my patients to where they have maybe instead of a good experience, they have a great experience. You know, they recommend me as a provider to friends who might need my assistance, you know, which is good for the practice in general. I'm just kind of in being proud of myself for managing that my current caseload, I am also thinking about what I can do better, which I think is the best place you can be, you know, acknowledge your successes, acknowledge your accomplishments, acknowledge what you're doing right. But, you know, reflect and contemplate what can you do better? What can you offer to your patients that you're not offering yet? So I really want to kind of shore up my knowledge and expertise on the therapy front. I'm doing pretty good when it comes to managing medications, but I feel like I could be better support therapeutically. So I'm diving deep into the books. I'm reading The Gift of Therapy right now by Irvin Yalom, um, in addition to Untamed by Glennon Doyle and Attached by Amir Levine. So I have a few titles on deck right now that I'm trying to get through. But yeah, that's big on my mind right now. You know, getting better with offering therapeutic support to my patients. A lot of them have therapists. So they see their therapists for those needs. And then they see me more so for medication management. But that's not the case with every patient. Some patients don't have therapists. Some patients are in between therapists and they need support. And I might be their only kind of lifeline in that way right now. So I just want to be able to give them the best that I can in terms of support and resources. So that's kind of where I am right now. So let's move on. I am subscribed to the Journal of America. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they have an online edition that they send out like once or twice a week that's geared solely to psychiatry. So I got the most recent edition in my inbox today, and I wanted to talk quickly about this 
article that they highlighted that made me say, hmm, this is interesting. So they did a study where they found a potential relationship between low folic acid levels and increased risk for suicide or self-harm. So the study included over 800,000 patients, 80% being female and about 90% being 59 years of age or younger. And they found that the risk of suicide and self-harm decreased by about half for patients who had an active folic acid prescription versus those who didn't. Now, I will link the article in the description of the podcast episode if folks care to read further. But I thought that this was really interesting because suicide We know a lot about it. We know a lot about what causes it um, or what can contribute to it, not necessarily what causes it. But I feel like sometimes we find the, the way to treat it a bit elusive. Like we know that therapy helps. We know that medication can help to an extent. But I feel like this is one of those situations where kind of just going back to the basics And considering that what could be causing a patient's suicidal ideations or impulse of self-harm or symptoms of depression or anxiety can be linked to a nutrient deficiency, which many times can be treated by over-the-counter vitamins and minerals. So I found this to be really interesting and it made me feel good to see this even though you know it's not something that is that will solve all issues when it comes to suicide but it made me happy to see that something as simple as folic acid which you can get in your food which you can get as a supplement could reduce your likelihood of suicidal ideations or your impulse to harm yourself, you know? And I think we take for granted how much just the vitamins, the everyday vitamins that our body needs, how much they impact just how we feel, like our mental health. Like like take this folic acid, for example. I was not privy to the possibility that it could impact potentially your likelihood of having suicidal ideations or having the impulse to hurt yourself. And now this is a tool that I have because of this new knowledge that I could apply to the sessions that I have with my patients who may be suffering in this regard or or dealing with these challenges and asking them, you know, have you gotten labs recently? Do you know what your levels are? Because we may find that the primary source of what you're dealing with is linked to a nutrient deficiency. And that is something that we can address right away. You know, if we find that you're low on this particular vitamin or mineral, we can 
have you get that at the drugstore or the supermarket and then you can start taking it right away and then you could potentially see an improvement and a difference in a positive way. So I am now, it is reinforcing for me as a provider the importance of getting labs for my patients and having that be one of the first steps when seeing someone new. Because depression can be linked to vitamin D deficiency. Fatigue can be linked to low iron. There's a lot of things that we deal with on a regular basis that we just kind of chalk it up to it being life that is actually caused by low vitamin levels. And now folic acid, folic acid is one of them. Folic acid is something that I'm going to inquire about with my patients, particularly those who may be struggling with depression and specifically suicidal ideation and ideations and impulses for self-harm. So I just wanted to talk quickly about this article because I feel like it's like a quick PSA. Definitely seek help if you're dealing with symptoms of depression, of anxiety, of PTSD, of any and all mental health and or psych challenges. But an easy and relatively quick thing you can do, especially if you are experiencing it quite suddenly and there's and there's really nothing that has changed in your life, um, go to a lab, get your levels done get some blood drawn, get your levels done, see what they're looking like. See if you're low on any essential vitamins and nutrients. Check your iron, check your vitamin D, check your B vitamins, check your magnesium. All of these are important. All of these impact not only our physical health, but our mental health. And a lot of the food that we're eating nowadays has lower nutritional value than it did decades ago. And that's just unfortunately a consequence of how our food is grown and processed in the United States. We are getting less vitamins and nutrients from the food that we eat every day. And that can very much impact our levels in our system, which can consequentially impact how we feel on any given day. So like I said, I wanted to quickly talk about this article and just drive home the point that, you know, the psych medications help, but a quick thing that listeners can do, those listening to this episode, a quick thing that I can do with my patients, which this has reinforced, is check on their labs, check on their levels, see how things are looking, and then address any inconsistencies there because if we do that we might find that the problem that the patient came with or you know my listeners if you're having any particular issues and you find that you're low on some vitamins then that is something that you can go to the store and pick those up and take them consistently and hopefully see a positive difference. So switching gears, I wanted to get into the main topic of this episode. So like I said, I've been practicing for about almost 10 months now. And though I'm still very much new in this profession and 
my career period, I wanted to talk about what I've noted to be true for myself and my patients so far as a provider. I have a pretty wide variety of clients, many men, many women, some transgender patients, a lot of younger patients. I think the youngest I have is 18 and the oldest might be like 65 or late 60s. And I have just noticed some themes when it comes to what a lot of my patients are dealing with, what is impacting them, you know, when it comes to their daily life and what they're looking for, what they're seeking. I found that this is very sad. It makes me very sad. And I think partially because I went through it And I was privileged enough to be able to change my situation before it got bad. But not everyone is able to do what I did. Not everyone is able to leave their job. Um, And I say that because a lot of my patients are struggling with monumental amounts of stress and anxiety that are attributable to their place of work and the environment that they have to work in, which could potentially be toxic and unsupportive. And it's not something that they can leave right away or at all at this point. They might have families, they just might have a lot of responsibilities and can't risk the pause in, you know, making a living. So it makes me sad to see because I would pretty confidently say that half, half at least of my patients with depression their symptoms would drastically reduce or potentially be eliminated altogether if they were able to leave their current place of employment and find something that was a better fit for them. And I think this this has to do with just so many things. It has to do with the theme of hyperproductivity in American society. It has to deal with capitalism. It has to deal with just being overworked. Being at work all the time means not having time for yourself, not having time to take care of yourself, not having time to socialize, to have a community, to build supports, to talk to family, to have hobbies, to think about what you want for yourself. And it is to the detriment of the patients that I've seen and just in general. And I wish I could do more than prescribe medication in these cases. Because sometimes the patients know that their job is their biggest source of stress, but they can't leave it 
for whatever reason, which I respect. And they need medication to get through what they're getting through. So that's one thing that I've noticed since starting. I remember having a patient at my old practice that I worked at earlier in the year. He was so stressed from his job. Overworked, had too many work responsibilities on his plate. And he came and saw me because he said that he thought he had ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. So we talked, I got to know him a little bit better. I, you know, he was like, I want to know what you think, give it to me straight. And I was like, I think you are overworked. You are not sleeping. He was getting about four hours of sleep a night, which is not enough. And I feel like Americans, a lot of Americans in general, just don't get enough sleep. But that's another topic for another day. (laughs) Sleep is so critical and consequential to quality of life. But I will leave it at that. He was getting four hours of sleep, was overworked, had too many responsibilities, and was telling me that he had issues with focus and concentration. And I was telling him that you're not going to be at your best performance with the amount of hours you're getting for sleep. You're not giving your body and your brain enough time to recover and kind of process everything that you have taken in every all the information that your brain has been processing all day you're not giving it enough time to kind of store what's important and throw away what's not so there's almost like a mental backlog and you're expecting your brain to work at peak capacity when it hasn't been able to kind of categorize and properly do what it needs to do with the information that is kind of backlogged and hasn't been taken care of. But yeah, I say all that to say he was not getting enough sleep and was overworked. And he, it was less about changing his work situation and more about just getting something to get through the day. And when it comes to ADHD and attention and focus issues, a lot of patients are looking for something quick and that works. And usually that's a stimulant. It's your Adderalls. It's your Ritalins. It's your Vyvanse. Those are the names of medications that are often treated, that are often used to treat ADHD. And they are also controlled substances because they can be highly addictive. So my rule of thumb is I usually don't start patients on stimulants right away. I will try non-stimulants first. And there was a, there's a particular one that I will sometimes try. It does have a notable side effect profile. And when I say notable, I just mean there are some unpleasant side effects. It's not, depending on the patient, it can be, you know, it can be tolerable. It cannot be tolerable. It just depends on your body chemistry. But I like to at least give that a try because I have had patients in the past who responded well to it before moving to the stimulants. So 
I prescribed him this medication, the non-stimulant, and told him that, you know, I'll see you in two weeks, but if you find that you're not adjusting well to the medication, call the practice and I'll see you sooner. So it wasn't even maybe three days I heard back from him and he wanted to see me the next week. So I saw him about a week after prescribing him the non-stimulant and he told me he hated how he felt on it. And he wanted to put some effort into just implementing some lifestyle changes. So this was the best news I could hear because I'm always a fan, a huge proponent of figuring out what can you change in your life that will maybe help this problem you're having before we introduce medication. So we were brainstorming, we were talking, he was asking for my input. I was telling him, you need more sleep, limit your screen time, because he liked to be on the computer like late in the in the wee hours of the morning. So I was like, get more sleep. I need you to be getting at least six hours of sleep. And this is like bare minimum. Limit your screen time, particularly in the night. And try and do a little bit more physical activity because he was very, his job was very sedentary. And see how you can reprioritize certain work tasks and maybe delegate others or just completely abandon the unimportant tasks altogether. So we talked. I think we also talked about meditation and mindfulness. And then the following week, I saw him the following week, and he told me that he was already feeling better because he took our conversation to heart. He started meditating and practicing mindfulness. He downloaded the Headspace app and was finding that it was helping him. And I was like, this is great news. And, you know, I said that I am a a big fan of meditation just from a personal place. And I like the Calm app. Headspace is great too, but I have found that I just kind of click more with the Calm app. And he was like, okay, I will give that a try. So I think at this point, he had discontinued the medication. He was feeling better. The side effects had all subsided and were no longer an issue. So I was like, you seem like you're doing well now. But before I completely discharge you, I want to see you one more time in two weeks just to make sure we're on the right track still. So he was like, okay. So I saw him two weeks later and he said that he was really surprised at how much meditation had positively impacted his life. He felt just much more calm. He was dealing with irritability when I was first seeing him kind of, you know, unnecessarily snapping at like his kids, his wife, you know, and it was his wife that was also pushing for him to see a practitioner. So he was saying how he's much less irritable. He's so much calmer. He's able to focus better. He's getting better sleep. He is trying to take walks with his son more so he's not as sedentary and he is taking seriously prioritizing what is important at work and leaving the rest. Like, you know, if there's a meeting on his calendar, he will really consider if he needs to be at that meeting or if it's time he can devote to himself and the work he needs to do or maybe even do a quick meditation. I think at that point he was meditating maybe twice a day or maybe like twice a day for short spurts or maybe like a longer period. But I'm never going to forget that patient because I it was the 
best example for me of how lifestyle changes can really improve your life to the point where you don't even need medication anymore. And I still think of him. I'm I'm hoping that he is doing just as good, if not better, than when I last saw him. But I just wanted to mention that he was able to kind of reshuffle things with work and not be as stressed, not be as anxious, being able to focus, being able to get more sleep. And, you know, I am also encouraging the patients I see now, however, you know, is appropriate that if you can figure out a way, if you can't leave your job, that's understandable. But if there is a way, if there's one or two ways in which you can reduce your stress at work, let's pursue it. Let's pursue it. If you are able to reshuffle some responsibilities, deprioritize some tasks, you know, do whatever you can to the point where you are not jeopardizing your job. Do it. Because I personally think that no job is worth your mental health. No job is worth your sanity. And if you are able to figure out a way to prioritize that a little bit more, you will be better for it. I have a client who I saw at the previous practice and I'm seeing here at my current practice now who has been struggling with her job and hasn't left. She's still there, but she's taking a week off for her own personal time. And when she told me this last week, I was over the moon. I was like, I am so proud of you. (laughs) I'm so proud of you for taking this time off work because you need it. She is burnt out she's burnt out and a lot of the anxiety and depression that she's struggling with and the ADHD is because of stress from work and I remember asking her when I first met her like our first couple of sessions earlier this year I was like have you ever considered that maybe your job is a primary source of your stress and your symptoms and she was like yes yes I know I know it's a big part And, you know, I'm a big believer in everyone encounters their own realizations in their own time. Everyone takes action in their own time. You can preach until you're blue in the face. But if it doesn't click for that person at that particular time, then okay. It may click for them later, weeks, months, years later. Hopefully it doesn't take that long. But I just see myself with some of my patients as someone who just continues to support them while they're on that journey of realization. And sometimes things are preventing them from making those changes or those shifts right away. So she found it to be the perfect time now to take that week off, take time for herself, take time for her partner and her children and kind of rest and recharge. So I hope these examples kind of paint a picture a little bit about how work can just be a huge drain on us mentally and physically. And if there's anyone out there listening who is in a job that is negatively impacting their mental health, I really hope that you're able to figure out a way to protect your mental health if you do not have any other options 
in this present moment because I do understand sometimes you just can't leave your job right away. Sometimes it takes months or even a year or more to really be able to take the leap. But if there's something that you can do, quiet quitting has been a trending topic for the past month or so. And I feel like it's just, it's, it's a, it's an old phenomenon under a new name. Because I feel like there are a lot of employees and people in the workforce who have gotten to their wits end at one point or another and have just decided that they're not going to jeopardize, jeopardize their mental and physical health. They're not going to go above and beyond, especially if their work is not appropriately recognized and they're going to look out for themselves. So I am definitely a proponent of that. I encourage my clients in however way I can to prioritize themselves. Of course, don't compromise your job, but any way that you can change how things are right now to your benefit, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. So I also wanted to say that I find that a lot of my clients just want to feel heard. They want to feel like their experiences matter. They want to feel like somebody is listening to them intently, taking everything that they're saying in and just want to know that what they're going through matters, their experiences matter, you know, their existence matters. And I find that a lot of my clients don't really have that in terms of adequate support whether it be family, whether it be friends, having someone to talk to who can validate what they're going through and tell them that they're not alone. Some clients only get that when they see me, however often. Some some people I see once a month, some people I see every three weeks, some two weeks, depending on their needs. But it saddens me that... The people that I'm seeing, and I feel like this can potentially be reflective of our generation, just people at large, that a lot of us has become so just disconnected and just emotionally distant to the point where we don't have emotional support. And it's important but it's getting more and more scarce and it worries me. Like I can do what I can as a provider. And like I said, a lot of my clients have therapists, but friendship is important. Friendships are important. You know, family is important. Relationships, healthy relationships, just in general is important. And I feel like a lot of people are lacking that and they're feeling the impact of it. And I just wish I could do more. But in the half hour or hour that I'm talking to my clients, I'm really trying my best to let them know that I'm hearing them. I'm hearing every word they're saying. I'm taking it in. I am listening reflectively and actively. I am making sure that they know that their experience matters and I validate it for them. And I have had patients express gratitude for that. So I know that I'm doing something right. I just wish it wasn't, you know, so prevalent 
because I see it with a lot of my patients and I just wish there was more that I can do. And lastly, just from my perspective, I'm always trying to figure out what I can do better for my patients. And I have discovered that they feel better with their sessions. I'm talking particularly with intake sessions, the sessions where I meet them for the first time. I ask them a simple question. How do you think the session went for you? And they usually say, I think it went well, but I do say that because I want the client to be able to tell me if there was anything that they felt could have gone better. Because one, I'm new. And two, even when I am seasoned in this field, it doesn't mean that there will be nothing left for me to learn. And I am big on the client knowing that they and I are a team. I am not your doctor or medical provider who's just telling you what to do. We are working together to figure out the the best course of action for you because you are the expert on your life. I'm just meeting you for the first time. I don't know anything about you. I am relying on you to tell me what is going on so we can figure out what to do next. And in saying that, I always also too, I have found that it is good practice to thank the patient for being so open and honest and transparent with the information because they don't have to be open. They don't have to open up to me. I am a stranger. Granted, they were referred to me for a service, but I'm still a stranger. They don't have to open up. There's nothing wrong with them giving me one word answers. It may just mean that it will take a little bit more time, but I would say 95% of the time in the intake, the patients are open books and they just tell me everything. And I am always so humbled and feel so privileged to the information that they're sharing with me. Sometimes I feel like it is too personal, but then I remind myself, I am that person. I'm the person that's hearing all the personal stuff. If it's not me, it might not be anybody else. (laughs) So I remind myself quickly that. But yeah, I always, I've made it a practice after every intake to say, I want to just quickly say that I appreciate you being so open and honest and candid. Because even though you are referred to me for a service, for mental health service, I'm still a stranger to you. And you did not have to open up to me the way that you did. So I appreciate you, you know, being transparent and telling me everything that you told me. You know, the more information we're able to gather, the better chance we have of formulating the most appropriate treatment plan. But just outside of that, just being able to talk to me and feel free and comfortable means a lot to me as a provider. And I have found that a lot of them have appreciated me saying that because it just speaks to validating them and acknowledging what they have gone through, their experiences, seeing them, you know, them feeling seen and feeling acknowledged and feeling validated 
and knowing that someone cares, someone cares about what they've gone through and wants to work with them to make things better. So that's it. That's it for this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening as always. Subscribe to my newsletter. The next edition will be out on October 15th. It's again called the Mid-Month Mental Health Newsletter. The last newsletter I sent out, I talked about the last episode. Well, not the last episode. I talked about an episode that the New York Times' daily podcast discussed about the mental health crisis among adolescents in the United States. I talked about intrusive thoughts. I talked about maternal suicide, which is a very sad topic. And I also talked about what I'm reading currently, what I'm watching. So I will be sending out the next edition of the newsletter in just about two weeks. So the link is in the description if you are interested in subscribing. And if you do, thank you in advance. As always, please share, please recommend to anyone who you think will appreciate this episode or any past episodes. If this episode or other episodes have positively impacted you, please rate and review on your preferred podcast platform. And again, as always, I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.